can't help doing that little dance every time I hear it. I just really honestly get a kick out of hearing that every single week. It's so much fun. Um, thank you, folks, for joining us for another week of the Rec Poker podcast. If you don't know what Rec Poker is all about, first of all, it's kind of weird that you're tuning in, but I'm glad that you are because you are about to learn about a great free poker learning community for folks like us that love poker. We love learning poker. We're encouraging and respectful with the other folks at the table, but we want to beat them and take all their chips. And we want to be the best damn poker players we can be. And we learn about that all together. We study together. We play together. We have fun together. And we do it all here at rec.poker. And you can too. All it takes is an email address and a smile. So please come on by and get a free account. Um, it's free because we've got great sponsors like Website Amp and the Running Aces Hotel Racetrack and Casino. Uh, we also have a premium membership where if you use the code RECPOKER to sign up, you can get your first month for only five bucks. But even after that, it's only $15 a month. That's one five, folks. One five, $15 a month. Can't go wrong with that. And I guarantee you that first five bucks is the best five bucks you're going to spend on poker training in your life. So come and join the panel here. I'm your host, Jim Reed. You can learn about me. I'm Bluffsterini in the home game and pretty much everywhere else. If you want to go to rec.poker slash crew, you can look up uh, me and everyone else on the wrecking crew who I get to hang out with every week and talk about poker. Um, but you can also just listen up because you're about to meet several wrecking crew members right here, starting with the one and only Chris Jones. Well, I'm Chris Jones. You can find me 5b5 on Twitter or 5x5 on the Poker Stars home game. I'm Keith Brandt, and I'm Monkey System everywhere. I'm Rob Washam, and I'm Rabman50 just about everywhere. I'm Taylor Moss. I'm GopherboyTJM in the home game, and Taylor underscore Moss on Twitter. I'm Woody Adams. I play as Rocketbox on PokerStars Pennsylvania. You can reach me at Woody Adams on Twitter. Right on. So like I said, I've got the best job in the world. I get to hang out here every week talking poker strat with this fine group. Um, we're also joined by a couple of premium members tonight, which I love it when some of and all our premium members are welcome. If there's a forum post that they're interested in, uh, bring it to the show. Let's talk about it here on the air. Tonight, we've got uh, John Kroll and Eric Anderson, two premium member stars of our forums who have been uh, submitting great posts and hand histories and leaving some great replies as well. So I hope we get a chance to talk to them about the subject matter tonight. It is Monday night. We are playing in the Rec Poker home game. We're just coming out of a chats edition of the podcast on YouTube. And instead of looking at an actual forum post tonight, we're going to look at the concepts behind uh, the the book study that we're doing right now. So every uh, Rob Washam, every two weeks, does, leads a panel discussion going through a different poker book. Uh, for the last little while, we've been starting uh, Dara O'Kearney's Endgame Poker Strategy, uh, the ICM book, he calls it. And uh, the I ICM was the theme of the month last month, but this was just too good an opportunity not to get together and talk about this crucial uh, factor when it comes to tournament poker. So 
Uh, Rob, folks can come and join you every two weeks to talk about the book study as you go through it chapter by chapter. You put these amazing slides and notes together, um, outlining what you're going to go through each week. And then uh, if members are, haven't watched from the beginning or haven't joined from the beginning, they can go by the video archive and watch all the previous uh, episodes, all the previous sessions that you've had with a great group of people here as well. So how, how's that been going and uh, what are you enjoying most about this particular book that you're studying right now? Well, it's uh, it's been going great. We get a lot of response. We get a lot of uh, we get a lot of uh, members joining us each at first and third Wednesdays of each month, and so it's uh, yeah, it's been very rewarding talking to the people and and you know I I'm definitely not the expert in any of these books. I'm reading it along with everybody else, so it's fun to be able to share our different viewpoints or different thoughts and things that we individually pick up in these books as we go through them. Yeah. And then we usually get the author to come and do a, a Q&A with our members at the end of the session. So we've done so many great books in this program. We've spoken to Andrew Brokus, Matt Matros. Uh, I mean, I, I, I've got a stack of these books behind me here that we could go through. Chris Wallace. Oh, yeah. Michael course, Acevedo. Just- it's 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 quite a catalog um so at some point at the end of the summer we'll probably get dara back in uh to talk to us about this one but uh you're just a few chapters in so if folks want to get involved now is a great time to go join the book study group uh here at rec poker so uh we just thought this would be a good time to talk about icm generally and some of the factors that might lead into us deciding how much emphasis to put on icm and my friend Woody reminded me in an earlier episode, we should probably start by just defining our terms a little bit. So when people talk about ICM, they mean the independent chip model. Now, that doesn't really tell us anything about what it means. Rob, what does it actually mean, uh, ICM? <laughs> <laughs> well, what it means is that the chips in a tournament are not one-to-one in value like they are in a cash game. In a cash game, they give you a chip and it has a denomination on it. And when you're anytime you want, you can stand up, take that chip over to the counter and get the cash for it. In a tournament, it's a much different situation. Um, so for brevity's sake, we'll talk about, let's say that's a 10-player sit-and-go. Everybody put in $100. The um, payouts are going to be 50, 30, 20. So you're not going to get all of that money, or let's say it's a $10 one and everybody puts in less. Yes, it's a $10 sit and go. The overall amount of money that's available is $100, but only the top three players are going to get paid. So that means the chips that you have in front of you are, if everybody has the same stack size, the chips are worth the same. They're all one-to-one. But the minute the chip stacks change, the amount those chips are worth in true dollars changes. And that's what the independent chip model is tracking. So one thing that people don't understand, I think about ICM that Dara pointed out in the book was that ICM is a factor right from the beginning of the tournament. It's, you know, a lot of people think about it on the bubble, on the final table bubble, but it, that is a factor that is affecting, should be affecting all of your decisions throughout the tournament because your chip values change. And, and Rob, so you're saying that if I play a 10 person sit and go and I win 100% of the chips and win the tournament, I don't win 100% of the money. 
That is correct. Well, that just stinks. <laughs> so it's almost so I see what you're saying then, because then it's not like the chips actually retain their one-to-one value all the way through. If I win the tournament with 10 players, I win $50 out of the hundred, second place gets 30 and third place gets 20. So there's got to be a way for us to kind of quantify the value of your stack because you're not just going to get 100% of the profits for winning. You have a shot at laddering into one of these various positions. And it might be more advantageous for you to take some chances at one portion of the tournament than it might at other portions of the tournament. Correct. Um, Correct. So, and people talk about like the chips that you lose are more valuable than the chips that you could gain back. That's a little counterintuitive, but... What uh, Daros Daros says in his chapter two, ICM in 30 minutes is losing hurts more than winning feels good. (laughs) And, and we all know that from a, from an emotional standpoint, just when you lose a hand, it really hurts. And sometimes you win a hand, you just go on to the next one and say, Mm -hmm. well, I should have won that. Mm -hmm. Right. So, um, that's, but that is even more so when it comes to the chips, the the last chip that you have in your stack is worth more than the 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 upper chip. So if you have a hundred chips, the first ninety nine are not as worth as much as that last one. Because that so last one, more- when you give that up, you're not in the tournament anymore. So that's Correct. a very valuable chip. That bottom yeah. one. Exactly. So the more chips you have, the less each chip is worth. It's a good I way of thinking. Wanna- about it. Yeah, what do you just want to sort of because that's like a concept that the last chip that you have is more valuable than your entire starting stack, right? But like, as far as a player goes, as far as a player is concerned, like, don't try to uh, don't try to play the game just to save your last chip. I don't think that's what we're saying either. I don't Mm -hmm. think that we're saying like play super super risk adver- or risk adverse when you have you know up until your last dime right that's that's not necessarily what we are saying here um yeah and i like what rob says about how icm is a factor even at the very beginning of a tournament uh, because icm is always a factor the question is how how much of a factor is it how much should we be how much weight should we be putting on it and i think what we'll find out today is that at certain parts of the tournament, it's very important. We should be putting a lot of weight on it. And at other points of the tournament, while it's a factor, it's not quite as important as, as some other aspects about it. Uh, in general, what he's saying is uh, when he, he talks about losing hurts more than winning feels good, is that in practice, it means shaving the bottom of your range. Uh, when, you're, when you're playing hands um, that you would play, say, in a cash game, you might take a few pips and not play those hands in a tournament because of the of the ICM factors, because those chips are not worth the same as they are on a one-to-one basis. So losing hurts more. So if you lose those chips, it hurts more than the, the one-to-one relationship in a cash game. In a tournament, they're worth more. So you need to shave a few pips off of those, um, off your range that you may call with or make some, whatever action it is that you're making you might want to do it a little bit tighter in a tournament. Uh, and how I always think about ICM, 
um, is because it's essentially like an old horse racing uh, method that was then adapted into poker. Uh, but like really what it is, is like, what's your odds of like finishing in each of these spots? And it's not like about how many, well, it is about how many chips you have, but like, it's not about like, Hey, I'm getting 5,000 chips in this specific hand or, uh, things like that. But it's like, how does it change my likelihood of winning the tournament or getting second or getting third or, you know, all the way down to like the very bottom. Uh, cause then, you know, you get knocked out, then you're out. Uh, so that's the way I always think about it is like, how does this change my odds of winning the tournament or finishing higher in the tournament? So uh, one of the big things I think that always comes up is like, Hey, you're on the bubble. How much ICM pressure are you under? Well, what's the bubble? Is it this heads up or uh, sorry, sit and go that Rob was talking about? It's a, you know, top three get paid and we're four people left. Well, if I win a lot of chips that drastically increases my chance of winning the tournament. Uh, so ICM doesn't really impact us all that much. Am I instead in a 300 person bubble where one of them is going to get knocked out, but then if I win, like I'm not really that guaranteed to get first. So the ICM factors like change depending on all those different situations. Um, so that that's how I always try and think about it is like, how does this change my likelihood to finish higher in the tournament? And what Dara says about uh, bubbles, ICM is the most extreme on the bubble, which is between not getting paid and getting paid. And then the final table bubble. So going into the final table where the payoffs really start to ramp up, um, going into that final table, that's the, most, the next most extreme bubble factor. So even though ICM is present throughout the whole tournament, there's certain points in the tournament where it becomes even more extreme. I mean, ICM is present, but it becomes very extreme in those two spots, the bubble and the final table bubble. Hey, Eric? Uh, and Well, the, to, to continue with that, it's the uh, the size of your pay jumps makes a big difference, too. Mm. That's, why, that's why the exact bubble is so big is because you go from zero to min caching, which is usually the biggest jump. Uh, well, until you get to the final table, and then you get the real big jumps. <laughs> yeah, but that's a great point. The difference between nothing and something is pretty big. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but if you have a really flat, slow payout structure, and you only win three bucks every time you ladder up, uh, ICM isn't as... Well, I want to make sure that's right. ICM isn't as big a factor, right? Or is it more of a factor? No, I, uh, I, think, I think that's right. Flat structure uh, it makes it more of a factor probably because the lower payouts uh like right 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 after the bubble and stuff there's higher payouts like on acr where the the uh, min cash is actually two buy-ins and but like in a very steep structure where say first place is getting a third or a half of the prize pool it's less of a factor and so yeah, we're talking counter, it's kind no, of counterintuitive what keith just mentioned um and this is something we found when we were when we were talking about it that a flatter structure is actually a more extreme ICM has more extreme ICM factors than a more steep structure than a steeper structure. And is that because there's less benefit to getting in first? So there's Correct. so Correct. that so even though the the other the other values are all the same, if you think about a, a scale, and it's like okay, on this side is I want to stay in the tournament, and on this side is I want to get in first. When first place is a really big prize, getting in first 
that has a lot of value. Um, when getting in first uh, doesn't have that big a prize, its value doesn't stack up as much to the value of remaining in the tournament. So it is counterintuitive, but uh, it does make sense because it's just there's not as much up top to make it worth risking uh, more than you would otherwise. And, and we do talk about risk a lot when we're talking about ICM because it's your is the likelihood that you're going to bust or the likelihood that you're going to make a certain uh, position in the tournament. So we often talk about it in terms of whether we're going to call or not, or whether we're going to like open a hand or not. And, you know, like Rob's saying, typically you want to shave a few pips off. So if you're in a space where, well, maybe I'd open Jack eight suited here. Now I'm only going to open Jack 10 suited. Um, because I just don't need to include those, the, the variance of those bottom, uh, of my range hands are not going to make enough of a difference for me now, but it's also what happens. What happens is, um, your bubble factor changes the amount of equity you need to call. So there are, there are actually bubble situations where it is right to fold pocket kinks. Mm Mm-hmm. There are situations where it is actually um, mathematically correct to fold pocket kings. I don't know how many of us in real life can actually do that, but (laughs) I know in a lot of the bubble situations I've been in, uh, especially playing online, most people don't have any clue what ICM is because when they show up with the hands they show up with, it's like, what in the world are you doing? That is ICM suicide. So... Yeah, well, you can also fold pocket aces like in your situation with the sit and go. If there's four people left and you're in the big blind and the other three guys all go all in, you're in the money. Uh, And aces only win 81% of the time. So it's smarter to fold those aces than than to to lose 20% of the time. That's right. And and it wins even. It wins even less often multi-way like that. So that that's a great point, Eric. You can't. Yeah, John? I had an epiphany in reading this book. And the idea that um, the bigger your stack, the less valuable each chip is. And so when Rob was just talking about equities, um, I thought about this in a different way. And I said, okay, if I'm, I've got the small stack and each one of my chips is worth $4 and the large stack, his chips are worth $1 a piece. Well, if I'm going to put in a chip, I'm putting in $4, he's putting in $1 that drastically changes the, the pot odds. And therefore, I'm going to want to have 80% equity. Mm. Um, to to be able to put $4 against $1. And Dara goes into very deep detail and many, many tables and charts and and shows just how much equity you have to have to be making some of these calls. And sometimes it's ridiculous. And as uh, someone just pointed out, well, maybe Aces only wins 81% of the time. There are times when he's saying you need 75 or 85% percent equity to make that call based on the value of your chips versus the big stack chip. I found that so enlightening. I'd never thought of it before. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a great point. And, and, you know, we've talked before also about sort of like the risk premium, uh, which is a way of like adding a- extra equity to what you would need to call. 
and sometimes it can it can be more than 100 <laughs> percent so it's like you know if you if uh if you're in a situation where uh that is the case yeah you should be folding aces and folding kings and just like we talked about before let other people make more or bigger mistakes in the tournament and you can kind of benefit from from them making those errors and you talk about risk premium um in the book here he calls it the bubble factor he got that from a book uh written you know probably 13 years ago now called kill everyone yeah by lee nelson and a few other people and they they first introduced what they call the bubble factor. And it's funny because I read that book a long time ago and I it went right over my head. I had no <laughs> idea what they were talking about. And so when I saw him reference that in, in the end game, I went back and looked at the book and it, then it made a lot of sense because now, now reading this one and talking about it. And so then Michael Acevedo calls it risk premium, which is mm. exactly the same thing as the bubble factor. So there's a lot of different terminologies for it, but the risk premium basically tells you what equity you need based on the ICM situation you're facing at that moment in time. Now, to get specific, you need an ICM computer or solver, you know, like a ICMizer, which is a free, you can get free ICM solutions. Uh, but you need to have that as a to to really figure out what the true bubble factor is. So as as humans, and we talked about this before, we're never going to be able to play GTO. So what we need to do is just understand that there is a bubble factor. We're never we're never going to know exactly what that bubble factor is, but we know that it exists and we can take other factors and make our decisions based on that. For instance, a flatter payout, that means the bubble factor is going to be higher. Your equities are going to be higher. If there's a micro or a mega stack at the table, it changes everybody else's ICM factors or bubble factors or the risk premiums of everybody else at the table when there's a very, very short stack or a very, very big stack. If there's a very, very short stack, nobody with a medium or big stack is going to want to go out before that short guy goes out because he's he's good. He's just destined to be leaving next so if you leave before him that's icm disaster that's that's what i see a lot of times when i'm playing certain tournaments i see two big stacks getting because they have a couple big hands they want to play right and they get in and a, a medium stack goes out and there's a guy sitting there with one big blind who's going to be the who's going to be on the big blind the next hand mm-hmm. it's like, what what are you doing um then the other one, when there's a mega stack at the table, somebody that has three times more chips than the next person, everybody else is playing for second at that time. So their ICM factors become more about playing for second than it is trying to get that win, which again is counterintuitive because a lot of people, when they see that big stack, they want to go after him because the only way they're going to win the tournament is if he goes out. And they go after him, and they again they're committing ICM suicide. At that moment in time, you should be going for second place. And if he gets stupid at, at some point along in the tournament and loses a bunch of chips, you might have a chance. But everybody else is really going for second in that spot. Yeah, and stack sizes are really the key uh, metric when we're when we're talking about ICM. And counterintuitively, if you're at a table, if you're let's say you're at a final table with with nine players, 
the shortest stack is actually not under the most ICM pressure. Because as Rob says, they're kind of due to go out next anyway. Um, so they have the least to lose. Um, the, the, the players under the most pressure are those medium stacks. Because if they just fold for a while, chances are the small stack's going to go out in ninth. And then they make money because the worst they can go out now is eighth. Um, and, and so on and so on. So it, you can see that that bottom chip right? Not having to put that bottom chip in play uh, gives you a lot a lot of advantages of stacks. Honestly, you, you can play some ICM spots completely blind to your cards just by st- uh, stack sizes at the table. It, it's really that important when it comes to choosing how to play. I'm sorry, One Taylor, things- I cut you off there. Did you have something? Uh, no, I, I was just going to add to what Rob was saying before and just like all the basics of ICM just like require essentially dynamic thinking, like understand the situations that you're under, understand the stack sizes and don't just play robotic. And I think that's probably a problem for a lot of people. And it, it's, it's something that you have to like think about and consciously uh, be going after it's when you first start playing poker, you like concentrate so heavily on like your hand strength and what does your hand value say? And then you start to evolve and think, okay, well, it's about my range and what hands could I have here and what hands could my opponent have? And you kind of have to do that same like evolution with your thinking when it comes to um, ICM, because so much of it is about like, what situation am I in? What are the payouts? What are my stack size? What are everyone else's stack size? And paying to all those uh, different dynamics and then understand how does that impact my decision-making in this specific hand? And honestly, like I only play tournament poker and I don't play cash games. And like I say, I'm not a thing in cash games, obviously, uh, but it is in tournaments. And it's the reason why I love tournaments because it's not just study these spots study ranges and just go with it. It's like, understand what are the other things going on within a tournament and adapting to those. So it's the thing I absolutely love about poker is how ICM can impact different situations. There's two things I just want to jump on here that I got reminded of from this conversation so far. So the first is don't make my mistake and just think that because you're the short stack, you should just be getting it in all the time now. So you don't have to go into full blufsterini mode here because even the short stack, let's say you're in a nine-handed tournament and one player has a really big stack and there's a bunch of middle stacks and then one player has a really small stack. If you actually crunch the numbers, every player at that tournament has a pretty similar equity share in the overall prize pool. Your smaller stack is going to have less equity than the biggest stack, but you're much closer than you think. It's not at all a one-to-one. Um, so if you're the short stack, you might still have, you know, eight to 10% equity in the tournament. The big stack only has 15 to 20% equity, even if they've got five times the number of chips you have, 10 times the number of chips you have. Um, so you still want to not make the mistake. You still want to give other people the opportunity to bust. Um, it's just that the cost of you doing it is less than it is for somebody else to do it. So uh, it's it's something something to be thinking about. It's always going to be a factor, even if you're under the least pressure. It's still a factor that you should consider. Yeah, Chris. Yeah, and I, I mean, I would just add to that, like the the being in the mindset of being the short. I actually love that situation. Yeah, when me I'm too. Not, like, in, like the short stack, because like I get to decide. I if the thing that I keep saying to myself is, "Don't be an easy out. Don't be an easy out." 
because it's putting all of the other players at the table in just hell, right? They're, they all, everybody else wants you to go away so that they can ladder up. And if you just sort of like, ah, you know, whatever, let's just gamble and see where we land. Um, you're, you're giving everybody what they want. Um, and you, you can really put, all those middle stacks under a ton of pressure where they have hands like jacks and somebody's opened and they're like, Oh, what the hell do I do now? And it's only because you folded, right? You made that happen. You put all these players in really difficult situations and also people make mistakes and you mm. can just ladder up with your mm. little six big blind, seven, eight big blind stack. Uh, as long as you, you know, you know, you still got to push your equity at some point, but, but, don't be an easy out because it's it's it it really does uh, make a difference in those spots. Uh, Dara Dara talks about uh, play tighter at the, as the shortest stack, mm-hmm. and he gives an example in the book of a, one of the first tournaments that he ever uh, played in. Actually, <laughs> actually, um, he got to the final table as a short stack, and he didn't play a hand. He did not play hand out. Nobody else at the table understood ICM. And because he was a sit and go player, so he was very familiar with ICM because as a sit and go player, you're in, you're into ICM all the time. And there was a major chip leader who was just devouring everybody else below him. And Dara didn't play a hand and everybody else kept attacking the chip leader and went out and he ended up heads up. He went to the final table as a short stack, ended up heads up with this guy who had a massive chip lead, and the guy asked if he wanted to chop. And they chopped even, an even chop. And yeah. so <laughs> it was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> so yep. that is that is a true story of somebody who played the short stack just a little tighter and a whole bunch of people that didn't understand ICM and they committed ICM suicide, and he ended up chopping heads up. So that's the segue that I needed because it's so crucial to know if your opponents understand ICM or not, because you need to know yourself, what are the assumptions that my opponents are going to be making about my hand, about their hand, about the actions to take? If your opponent is very ICM savvy, if they understand ICM, then you can put them in a very difficult position by just going all in. And if you have them covered, they really have to only call at a very, very low frequency with a very small set of hands that's that's really just the best possible hands. And it stinks when they do, but they only get those hands like 2% of the time. So it's it's you you want to be in that position where you can apply that kind of ICM pressure on them. But if your opponent doesn't understand ICM, yeah, you know where I'm going with this, Rob. Yeah, then then they're like, going. oh, okay, well, I'll get in here with pocket tens. You know, I'll get in here with uh, ace-jack offsuit, and let's, let, let's gamble, fellas. Uh, and that is a disaster for you if you are trying to just make them fold. Uh, how can they call? How could they possibly call here with all this ICM pressure? Well, they're not thinking about ICM. They're just looking down at the cards and saying, oh, these are two cards higher than a 10. Let's, let's, let's see what happens. And so you can really put yourself in trouble. Um, if, you're, if you understand ICM and the other players at the table don't, that's actually not a really good spot for you if you're playing as though they do. 
No, that's that's a big one. I have actually been up against opponents who played back at me more because they weren't going to they were going to stand up to the bully. Right. <laughs> yes. Yes. And it's like part of the thing is I think people don't understand their incentives properly in this kind of circumstance, right? So uh, just like we're saying, you know, if you're that player with the four big blinds or whatever, maybe it's time for you to think about not trying to get first place in this tournament, but just laddering up a couple spots and getting a bigger payday than, than you would get otherwise. John, did you have something there? Yeah. The, the other thing that I think is quite important that Dara points out in this book is that under ICM pressure, a calling mistake is much more costly than a shoving mistake. You always want to be the aggressor, and in, unless you've got close to the nuts, you don't want to be calling because that's your opportunity to be knocked out. Yeah, he talks about your use of snap shove practice apps because of that. You should spend much more time practicing on calling shoves than on being the shover because yep. the errors of calling shoves are far more catastrophic. That's a great point. And when I'm playing against opponents, usually when I'm categorizing players, it's by the kinds of mistakes that they make. So this player folds too much. They make folding mistakes. This player calls too much. They make calling mistakes. This player is too aggressive. They make raising mistakes. So usually in an ICM spot, as the guys are saying here, calling is the most expensive by far if you make calling mistakes. Folding mistakes, if you overfold, you know, you might miss a spot, but it's not really the end of the world. And shoving mistakes, you know, you're often going to have a lot of fold equity in there. And even when they do call, it's just, it's a struck, it's a function of the game of poker that um, if you get it in pre-flop, you're going to have, you know, 30% equity or something uh, when you get to the flop. So that really, if you're going to screw up, it sounds crazy, but do it by folding or shoving and try not to make those calling mistakes because that's where you really put yourself uh, behind the eight ball there. So let's just talk about that a little bit. And then I think we'll roll on out of here. So let's say our opponents do understand ICM and we know that they do. How are we going to make their lives more difficult, Rob? Is, is it going to be, and like by pre-flop, I could see that just be by going all in. Um, maybe when they're like, you're in the small blind, they're in the big blind, you've got them covered. But um, I think I think also post-flop, you get a chance to just kind of put them in uncomfortable positions, right? Well, who covers who is very important. Mm-hmm. And beyond who covers who is even when your your stacks are very similar, you know, even if you if that person covers you by just a few big blinds, you're still putting a lot of pressure on him. Because if you go into get into battle with that guy and he loses, now we switch places, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're the short stack, you play very tight. And the people that you're going to target when you are going to play are going to be the players that are just above you in chips. Um, as a middle stack, you can attack the shorter stacks. As a big stack, you can attack everybody. But here's something. You don't necessarily want to bust out the short stack great point when you're the big stack because as the big stack you put a lot of pressure on the medium stacks and especially if that short stack is still there because they're wanting to stick around until that short stack is gone so it gives you a lot more playability it gives you a lot more um i guess fold equity right because those medium stacks are not going to want to get involved with the big stack so those are the types of 
dynamics that are at play. Um, so it, it's very, you have pay attention to your position in relation to the big stack and to the short stack, because that's going to, that's going to inform how you are going to be able to play that tournament in that ICM environment. It's a great point, Rob. And another one of those counterintuitive spots where, you know, you're, you're the big stack, you're at a final table, you're thinking there's this short stack. Of course, we want them to bust so that we can, everyone ladders up, but actually it's the other players that really want them to bust because they're the ones that have to ladder up. You're sitting there with all these chips. It's actually a pretty great spot. Um, it's easier for you to keep putting pressure on those medium stacks when they're like, okay, well, this guy's, this small stack's going to be out in two orbits. I better just fold a lot um, and not go out first. That's a great position to be in as the big stack. Your equity, um, your tournament equity, your Mm. dollar equity doesn't go up as high when you're the big stack, when the short stack goes out. Yep. The other player's equity goes up much higher. Yeah. then your equity goes up in that spot because you're already at the top of the equity buckets, right? And as you go down, it gets it gets bigger and bigger the more people that... So, yeah, it's, it's counterintuitive, but as a big stack, you don't necessarily want to um, the short stack to go out because you continue to put pressure on the medium stacks. Well, not only that, but it's fun. Because uh, I've been there where I asked, how many chips have you got? You're covering them with your hand. And then he had the short stack, so I tossed my cards in. A couple of the other players, or five of us left, a couple of the other players go, oh, (laughs) because I'd been stealing every pot from them, you know. But I I let the short guy live, and they didn't like that. Now, for me, that was great fun. So it was another incentive to do it. I love it, Keith. That's great, man. I love it. Well, this is really good stuff. So I, if, if people are interested in learning more about ICM, there's a bunch of great resources. Obviously, uh, we'd love it if you took that plunge and used the code RECPOKER to get your first month of premium membership for only $5. In a month, you can watch a lot of the backup, the, the old videos that we've put out of these different sessions of the book study that Rob's doing every two weeks. Um, you've got, we've got a couple other, I mean, Daro Carney visits every month. And does part of our here? Well, Chris, yeah, you. Can yeah, I was just going to add. If and if you're uh, if you are a premium member, go tune into the April uh, seminar where Dara actually looks at one of our rec poker hands and does a full ICM analysis of it. We were simulating the uh, a Venom final table amongst the players, and uh, it was a really interesting spot. So it's worth worth a look. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, it's a hard thing to practice uh, playing final tables or simulating ICM pressure, but it's not something you want to be thinking about for the first time when all the money's on the line. So it's a difficult thing to practice. It's a difficult thing to study. It's a difficult thing to apply, but I do encourage everyone to do some thinking about ICM, um, whether it's as the short stack or whether it's as the big stack or whether it's as the medium stack. Because when it does get down to that final table, that's where the really expensive mistakes are made. And you don't want to be feeling stupid uh, doing something that you could have just flipped to the back of the textbook and found an easy way to avoid it. So, um, But the big key is if you're a medium stack, just don't go messing around with the big stack or the other medium stacks. You just play play tight is right and be tight and aggressive. 
and let other people make uh, the bigger mistakes or, or the mistakes more often so that you can ladder up and make some dough. Eric, was there something else you wanted to throw in at the end there? Yeah. Uh, one of the beautiful things about ICM is it it's just getting connected to the solvers and ICM is not GTO. So if you can stay up on ICM, you're going to be ahead of the crowd. It's, it's, it's still evolving. I don't think ICM today is going to be the same as ICM five years from now. That's a good point. It's a good point. And it's something that, again, you, uh, you have to be intentional about studying because you're not going to encounter it naturally that often in your, in your day-to-day play in a way that allows you to meaningfully uh, think about it. All right. Well, uh, this was a really fun conversation. I would like to thank Taylor, Woody, Eric, Keith, Rob, Chris, and John. Of course, Website Amp and Running Aces Hotel Racetrack and Casino. Steve Fredlin for making all this happen. And you, the listeners, thank you so much. We'll see you next week.